Hello and welcome to the exam hall. This is the podcast where I sit down with a guest and we answer questions from what is known as the hardest exam in the world, the All Souls Fellowship exam. My name is Cherry and I am your host. I'm an ex-education professional, soon to be uni student and serial procrastinator. I procrastinated thinking of an introduction today. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. I'm so glad that you are returning. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, let me clue you in on what is going on here. All Souls College, Oxford, is maybe the most prestigious and exclusive academic institution in the world. Each applicant must sit for three-hour exams, two specialist papers and two general papers, which is where we are drawing our questions from today. If you are lucky enough to be awarded one of only two possible fellowships, you receive funding and resources for a seven-year period to fund any research project of your choice. To be eligible to apply, you must already hold a degree from Oxford or be currently studying there at postgraduate level. However, here at the exam hall, there is no eligibility criteria. Everybody is welcome. Everybody is equal. So... Without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming our very special guest for today's episode. It is our first guest to actually be eligible for the exam. It is writer and theatre maker Rafaela Cerro. Hello, Terry. Thank Hello. You so much for me. How are you um, doing today? I'm good. I'm very excited because actually I'm not eligible. I have been eligible. Not anymore. Uh, yes. This is the, I, <laughs> tell us about that because this is something I didn't know. You have to sit the exam within seven terms of graduating. Yes, at least um, in my time, like there was um, the thing like, yeah, seven terms. And I graduated in um, August 2019 and then I, so I was eligible to sit, sit the exam uh, in September of 2019, um, but you have the choice to do it like the next year or the year after, but then obviously COVID happened and uh, no one sat the exam. Yeah, there's no 2020, 2020 paper. Yeah, and so um, then I would have been eligible to sit it in 2021, but I was actually uh, doing training uh, at... Cambridge to teach to be able to teach actually work uh, and so I couldn't do it that year but I thought that everyone well it's it's a bit of a like it's a bit of a mess but basically <laughs> the next year then I was like hey can I sit the exam because everyone from 2020 got like um I don't know like um some um time where like they were like okay you couldn't do it in 2020 like so a special now yeah 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 exactly uh and they were like no it's too late You've oh missed your window go away oh my god <laughs> so sad so the exam is even more exclusive than I realized yeah yeah it's not only you have to have a degree from Oxford it's you have to have a degree from Oxford and be really fucking quick about sitting the exam yeah and also like <laughs> yeah and being like having the guts to sit the exam in a way of like yeah. that's what I yeah I think um about every night I cry myself to sleep thinking <laughs> that I haven't sat the exam because to be honest like after um sitting my finals I was feeling pretty um destroyed like I mean I just finished uh, a degree from Oxford and um 
I thought I had time and I thought I wasn't clever enough yet. Yeah. <laughs> yet, because like obviously <laughs> I was going to get there. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to do my MPhil now and then I'll come back and I'll be, and, I'll, and maybe I will have a shot. So yeah. I feel like there's also an element of exclusivity um, to the exam that it's like, it's not just whether you're eligible, but also like whether you you feel like it's for you like mm. if whether you feel like it's the kind of thing that um was set up for people like you if you if that makes yeah, sense yeah no it does you have to be very sort of ballsy almost mm. and yeah. i feel like there's a lot of kind of implied uh eligibility criteria with how exclusive it is yeah, you you have to believe you could be one of two people. Yeah, which is I think a um, is is very much like the way it is for Oxbridge in general. I think it's not about mm. like whether a person is clever enough to get in, but like you also have to like master that boldness. Or yeah. Like, or like self-importance, <laughs> uh, or like the arrogance of belonging, as I've once like read, um, it was described like of being like, yeah, I do, I do believe, like I, I do believe that I belong there. Mm. Um, so it's like, and a lot of people who are actually at Oxbridge are like, still feel like they don't belong. Like I've been in. I've been in the circuits like for eight years <laughs> now, um, doing like undergrad and then postgrad. Yeah. And more postgrad. Um, and I still feel like I don't belong there at all. Um, and I feel like that's something that a lot of people feel like that. And yeah. it doesn't get discussed as much as it should, maybe. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very glad that you're here today. And I hope that. We're not all souls. <laughs> oh, you're way better. Exactly. Yeah. We're way better. We're, we're much cooler than all souls. All souls. Yeah. So I hope we can provide you a sense of catharsis today. Thank you. Raffaella, tell me, what qualifications do you have to be sitting here today? And we use qualifications very liberally. Mm-hmm. Those could be uh, sort of traditional, uh, recognised academic qualifications, or they could be qualifications received more unconventionally from the school of life. Oh, okay. So let me think. Um, <laughs> as I've hinted, uh, I have um, way too many um, education qualifications. So like, <laughs> yeah, way too many. Um, um, but I think what actually qualifies me to be here today is my ability to make fresh pasta. Yeah, <laughs> that's insanely impressive. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I don't like to brag. Uh, but I can do it brag yeah oh, well I have been able to make pasta since I was three years old <gasps> yeah because my grandparents taught me in Italy they also taught me to like fill um like you know make homemade sausages as a, as a three years old like I, I think that should they put me to work actually like <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it was actually child labor but like <laughs> um but they also taught me to make fresh pasta so it's something that I do a lot uh for um pretty much everyone I meet I've attempted to make pasta twice in my life once with my grandmother and we had this like pasta maker from the 70s but um because the pasta maker was so old 
it was like the pasta came out covered in rust oh (laughs) (laughs) and one time I was home alone and I was like fuck it I'm gonna try and make homemade gnocchi because this person on TikTok made it and it looks really easy and it was not really easy and it caused me to have a breakdown and waste loads of potatoes at like 11 (laughs) o'clock oh you see but like you know this that same arrogance of belonging that like you need to do for the to have for this exam Uh, i can make gnocchi like of course maybe yeah maybe i should maybe i am the right sort of candidate (laughs) to sit the exam i've just got the raw belief that i can do anything i send my mind to (laughs) even if it is often very misguided Well, Rafaela, I'm very glad that you're here today to talk to me and to finally sit the exam. Finally. Finally. <laughs> We're going to get you some vindication. We're going to get you revenge. Just for Raf. <laughs> Today's question mm-hmm. comes from 2019. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. The year you were... El- so this could have been the exam you actually sat. Uh, it's from the general paper two. It is number 17 on the general paper two and it is a meaty question (laughs) and it goes as follows quote the gendered metaphor of the faithful translation whose worth is always secondary to that of the male authored original requires a particular edge in the context of a translation by a woman and that is from emily wilson translator of the odyssey discuss oh indeed we shall (laughs) and indeed we shall (laughs) discuss um Raffaella tell me what drew you to this question well to begin with like I love Emily Wilson I love her translation of the Odyssey um I love that she's a woman (laughs) and she translates the Odyssey like you would have thought that like in um, thousands of years of the Odyssey being a thing that would have happened uh, earlier uh, but I think it only happened in maybe 2016 or 17 because really? I remember I was at uni yeah um, and there still isn't um, a translation of the Iliad by a woman that I know of although that wow. seems like even as I say that I'm like is that is that possible but like you know um, there are more things in heaven and earth, uh, but I think like this question kind of ticks all of my boxes because, yeah, it's about gender. It's about um, who gets to say things uh, or like to translate things, and also about language and translation, which is a big thing for me because English isn't my first language mm. um, and also so I did classics for my undergrad so I guess I spent a lot of time again way too much time of my life just <laughs> looking at that language so yeah it's interesting and I think it's not just about um, translations of the classics um, but like it can be applied to a bit like everything I guess yeah Yeah. this is an intimidating question to pick so this quote comes from the translator's note uh, Mm. from her version of the odyssey let's just start off with what is this quote actually saying the full quote uh, I have in front of me Uh, the gendered metaphor of the faithful translation and faith like you can't see but faithful is in like 
quotes, Mm -hmm. whose worth is always secondary to that of the male-authored original, acquires a particular edge in the context of a translation by a woman of the Odyssey, a poem that is deeply invested in the female fidelity and male dominance. Oh, interesting. Mm. Very interesting. Well, let's start off with the Odyssey. As a classic student, did you ever read the Odyssey? What is your sort of... What's been your experience with the Odyssey? Odyssey? What's your relationship with the Odyssey? Well, I'm very very lucky in many regards in my life but like that my um one of them being that um my dad used to read a very weird long difficult stuff to me when I was a child (laughs) in the bath I did like I have this image of me in the bath like playing with stuff and my dad being like let's read the divine comedy Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I think um it definitely I I can't remember like the first time that I came across the Odyssey because it's been like quite um like embedded I guess in my um almost like subconscious yeah (laughs) So I read it way before going to uni and then I think I chose, no I did. I definitely chose <laughs> to do Greek examiner poetry uh, as a um, paper for my finals uh, and the Odyssey was a big part of that. So uh, mm. Greek examiner poetry was the kind of poetry that was written um and the time that the Odyssey was written, and but it's um, it's also like Hesiod, the works and days, a lot of stuff. Maybe I'm being too, <laughs> I'm going to, too much into details. No. This is not a lecture, <laughs> um, but yeah. So I studied it uh, at uni as well. Yeah. For, um, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the story of the Odyssey, good point. yes, which is very fair. <laughs> so um, I'll, I think I'll be honest. I know very little about it It, I know the sort of basic Mm -hmm. concepts and characters but my for people who don't aren't familiar with the Odyssey such as myself Uh, (laughs) (laughs) well that's that probably means you had a happier childhood (laughs) (laughs) um so what happens in the Odyssey um a man it actually starts with the word uh, a man (laughs) uh, in Greek um is trying to go back home some might argue that would be his um um argument to his wife okay let's start from the beginning there's been like this big war and uh, that is like um the subject of the Iliad the the Trojan war, Trojan war um which I believe we're all familiar with because of Brad Pitt uh being in Troy so true yeah right so true um and also uh what was what's that amazing novel uh, that's from the point of view of Patroclus, who's Achilles' lover. Gosh, oh, Song, oh, of Song of Achilles! Yes, so that's what. Uh, that's why we know the story of the Iliad. Mm. Uh, so there's been this big war. Um, Odysseus is like this really clever guy who arguably like was the reason they won the war because he came up with the um, Trojan horse thing. Okay, um, they won the war. The Greeks all. Can I swear on this Absolutely. Okay, Go so ahead. The, <laughs> the Greeks all fucked off uh, back to their houses. Yes. Um, most of them got killed one way or another. Uh, so the, the Odyssey is the story of Odysseus trying to get back home. Mm-hmm. 
it's also, I guess, the story of him like having adventures along the way because it's not like he's like, oh, I need to go home right now. Like it, it, it takes it his time. He's like, oh, I want to. I wonder like what it would be like to like I don't know sleep with a witch or that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I'm just gonna like experience he, life. He's, he's not. <laughs> it takes him about ten years, doesn't it? Yeah, to 10 get years. home. So he's not particularly keen no. <laughs> what am I talking? no um, he's not um not a family man no. <laughs> which is weird because like that's what he's thought of usually like the the, um, the family man mm. and, like um Agamemnon who sacrificed uh his daughter which is the reason why his wife kills him but that's literally another story um but yeah so I think it's the story of him coming home. From another perspective, it's also the story of his family dealing with the aftermath of him not being home. So it actually starts with his um, son, Telemachus. So we call the first four books of the Odyssey are called the Telemachia. Um, and they're about like Telemachus basically going around and being like, where's my dad? Where's my dad? <laughs> and like wow. going to ask like uh, his dad's friends, uh, where the fuck he's gone? Yeah. <laughs> and why he isn't home. But especially, and it's also about like Penelope, um, Odysseus's wife, like kind of literally like fending off people who want to marry her. Okay. Um, so like that's like the first four books. So like, I think it's the the last four as well that are like also set um on um Ithaca on Ithaca okay. <laughs> uh, which is the island where um Odysseus uh is the king yes. and Penelope and Telemachus are left dealing with his mess <laughs> um like yeah so the first four and last four books maybe I think that's mm-hmm. like are set there and like they're basically about the family whereas like the other books are about him going around, losing all of his men, <laughs> all of them, uh, sleeping around, having kind of like a good, sometimes bad time. But yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> Just kind of a rundown of the Odyssey. But yeah, yeah, I think, I think it, yeah. you've done that pretty well. Um, so Emily Wilson, who this, who is the translator of the Odyssey, is the first female translator yeah. that we know of. I that think. we know that's you know what that's true the first female translator that we know of why 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 is that taking so long hello this is editor cherry here to contextualize and correct some of this information after recording this episode i went away and did a bit more research Emily Wilson's translation of the odyssey is the first english translation by a woman to be published likewise Caroline Alexander in 2016 became the first female translator of the Iliad to be published in English. But they are by no means the first female classicists to translate these works. And Dacia, for example, translated the Iliad and the Odyssey into French in 1699 and 1708. Many of these women have been relegated to obscurity. And if you're interested in learning more, I have linked a Guardian article below which explores female translation of the classics in more detail. I'll be back later in this episode to add some more context, but for now, enjoy listening. Um, well, <laughs> speaking of gatekeeping, <laughs> speaking of gatekeeping, um, I, I can't imagine of a more gate kept. 
<laughs> uh, subject than yeah. classics uh, in this country, particularly. Mm. I think it's very different in Italy. Okay. Which is where I'm from uh, and where I grew up. And um, so I went to state school uh, and most state schools in Italy um, offer Greek and Latin or at least Latin. A fair number also offer Greek. So like it's something that you are... It's a bit more embedded into yeah. the uh, state education system. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not a... It's not a subject for like rich white boys if that makes no. sense like it's just what it, it's like maths like yeah it's not like something you know it's part of the curriculum whereas over yeah. here I mean most most state schools offer it as an extracurricular if at all yeah it's, and you'll find it in Eton and all the sort of private schools exactly. offering Latin and Greek and classics yeah. which are usually from my understanding like the like the schools that are funded to like give this yeah. classical education that's very based on language are actually all male schools mm. um which is definitely i think a factor in the fact that um women don't study classics yeah. <laughs> um because they don't like it's not that easy like to yeah them. I mean I, I don't know how true it is but the perception is you know you go to Eton or Harrow which are male mm-hmm. which are boys private schools or public schools I don't actually know the difference between a private school and a public school in the UK they're mm. fee-paying schools you've yeah. got to be fucking rich to go there <laughs> and the perception bottom is, line <laughs> yeah the bottom line is you got to have a pretty hefty wallet uh, yeah. to send your child there and those are the schools that teach um Generally, those are the schools that are teaching classics as a standard and not as an extra. Yeah, and then and also I think all the the stuff that comes with that is like the mm. the cultural the cultural I don't know like legacy of that is that classics has been very tied up with a certain kind of politics and a certain kind of people and. Um, and also it's been used to to make political discourses mm. that not ev- like there are like quite enclosed on purpose yeah. like they're not very accessible and yeah. that's how it's supposed to be <laughs> yeah well I mean you know you get people like Boris Johnson you'll very often bring up classics in there god I wonder if Boris sat the exam I bet he sat did he he, did he go to yeah he went to Belial he did classics at Belial yeah I I feel like he's too arrogant I feel like he would I feel yeah I feel like (laughs) he would be like well why are you even making me sit an exam I should just be made a fellow (laughs) Um, um, oh, we should. I wonder, like, if there's any record of that. We should. We should look into that's that. A re- yeah. I mean, mm. maybe. I'm, oh. I'll have to see how far a freedom of information request can mm-hmm. take me. But classics, yeah, it's very often used by right wing yeah. um, groups as a yeah. sort of. I feel like classic classics very often is used by right wing groups to kind of point at 
the ancient world and go look how far we have fallen i mean yeah uh, like look men used to be men back in ancient greece they used to go on journeys and with their boyfriends <laughs> <laughs> they used to be on ships with like lots of other men and see women very rarely um <laughs> i'm sure that was a completely heterosexual ship <laughs> but yeah it's, it's very classics very often used by right-wing groups to sort of as a talking point about the sort of moral decay of society, the Nazis mm. very often would, mm. uh, you know, decry and say modern art was horrible, degenerate stuff and that we should be returning to the classics. There's this idea of returning yeah. to the classics. I suppose classics is Which sort is, of yeah, it, it, it's amazing as in it, it's hilarious because that's exactly what the romans said <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and that's there's always like there's always been this sense of um our ancestors were better than us like we've fallen from grace mm. um even before like there was a concept of grace i guess <laughs> uh and it was definitely a thing uh in the roman world uh especially um, so like a lot of th- that's what infuriates me about classics in this country mm. like the fact that it's not understood by the vast majority of the population like it's just a language that you're not um, aware of yeah but that people in power use so it's like they're th- like this group of people um, who have like control over like most of the population like they're using a language that is adopted in order to literally like people keep people out of Mm. like um the rooms where stuff happens like the rooms with buttons and (laughs) um yeah let's go back to this quote this idea the idea of a faithful Mm. translation how how can you faithfully translate something, especially when looking at a dead language? Yeah, um, I actually think my answer would be like, you can't. Actually, mm. I don't think you can, there is such a thing as a faithful translation. And I think it's interesting that um, Emily Wilson described it as a, as a dendered metaphor because there is this sense that moving away from something that's perceived as set in stone Mm. um that's a it's a kind of um betrayal uh, and it's a kind of again like fall from grace and a kind of um losing your way uh and that's and that's like associated with a non-male eaters yeah, I guess. I mean, she puts faithful in quotes. And yeah, this, I, she's, exactly. I think she sort of suggests in that quote that the idea of a faithful translation is one that is thought to be male. The gendered metaphor of the quote faithful mm-hmm. translation. She sort of she sort of saying this idea of a faithful translation is one that is in, inherently male. I think it's definitely male um, authored, as she says. Like, as in, it's part of that set of rules that some of the boys mm-hmm. <laughs> put together at some point, and yeah. will have to play by. But like to go back to the idea of a faithful translation, I don't think 
that there is such a thing as a faithful translation. Actually, I'm reminded of something that um, a school teacher of mine used to say about um, Latin and Greek translations, that, that like every translation is a betrayal. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, it sounds much better in Italian, I must say, <laughs> uh, because it's um, ogni traduzione un tradimento. <laughs> Which is like, uh, yeah, every translation any, is a any, betrayal. Anytime anything is said in another language, <laughs> I do think it just gains instant... Weight. <laughs> in, in, instant weight, yeah. Okay. I'm like, I, d- I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> that must mean that it's smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think... And I think that plays into the idea of there is a right way of translating something in a wrong way and I guess I mean on a very basic level like yeah sure (laughs) there is um but also a lot of things are untranslatable um I think and and, and it's something that I became very aware of obviously like living in this country for eight years yeah um and realizing not just actually like it it happens to me less when I'm in England and more when I'm in in Italy and I'm trying to talk to my parents um and they don't speak English and I'm like there's this like I can't talk to you about my life because there are all of these things that I'm doing and that are like happening to me that I just don't know like there are no words for in Italian Mm. um so I think it's always I d- maybe it's like a betrayal of the self. Like yeah. every well, it's inherently yeah. when we're looking at translation of text, it inherently changes mm. the text. You're inherently yeah. warping whatever the original mm-hmm. meaning was, because unless you can, unless you you can read ancient mm-hmm. Greek fluently, there's there's going to be certain meanings lost, isn't there? Yeah, but. I mean, in a way, that ha- even if you do know the language that you're reading in, mm. um, if you're reading such an old text like the Odyssey, or uh, my PhD is in Shakespeare now, so mm-hmm. um, I've moved on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, if if you're reading something that was part of a culture that is now so far removed, you're always going to bring something into the text that just wasn't um, available to the the writer mm. or like the author like and in in the case of um, works like the Iliad and the Odyssey they weren't even written down to begin with like they come from um, oral tradition right um, how can we even talk about betraying um or like moving away from um a text that actually isn't really set down in stones as like we we want to believe because like it was very fluid until it wasn't anymore Mm. (laughs) um but someone at some point probably a man (laughs) um decided this is the text so it's not who are you betraying like what what whose story are you trying to tell and who gets to decide that? Yeah. In your opinion, when we're looking at texts that are presumably written by men 
in a culture that had very different ideas of gender and just a society whose sort of ideas of right and wrong and morality were very very different um should you try as hard as you can to remain faithful as close as you can get to that original Mm. society and translating it with that original society in mind or do you think you should translate it specifically for modern audiences and coming in with a new eye so Mm. with the eye of a woman um or with the eye of someone who isn't sort of that traditional classics audience does that make sense yeah it does should you translate something specifically trying to get as close to that original society's view or should you do you think you should come in and try and be translate it specifically thinking about the modern society that you're living in um I think a bit of both I guess Mm. um well that's the first problem with um the idea of um a faithful translation so like trying to translate something in the context in which it was put down or written um is that it's delusional yeah (laughs) like (laughs) that that world is gone babes (laughs) um even as again like Shakespeare's England like it's it's gone it's like gone. don't get over it yeah Sorry. exactly get over it <laughs> uh, that's what I want to say like when people are like against like blind casting or like they're like oh no this is not faithful to Shakespeare um or like to that time I'm like what the fuck do you know like you weren't were, were you there yeah I'm exactly. sorry did you get in the did you just hop off the TARDIS That's are you a time traveler what's yeah, happening exactly here? um so to begin with it's undoable um so but also it would be really extremely harmful I think yeah um to try and um I think if we were trying to do the classics as they were intended Mm. uh, by someone like the emperor Augustus uh, that would be really fucked up (laughs) because um, ideas about women were appalling yeah (laughs) Uh, for example uh, not to talk like not to mention um, slavery and um, yeah terrible things like I don't know who like came up with the idea that um the ancient world was like this fanfare oh actually I think Augustus did Mm. um yeah and then we we keep saying that story uh and when I say we I mean Boris Johnson (laughs) um (laughs) but so yeah so in a way it's it's impossible to do it but also why would we want to do that that because it's been done so much (laughs) for the past like thousands of years yeah like there is something valuable in just doing something differently for the sake of doing it differently because we can yeah <laughs> um and one quote that i repeat a lot um is uh by i think john joachim winkelmann i don't know how to pronounce his name but he's one of the boys who made the rules about classics. I think it was an 18th Perfect. century, um, an 18th century uh, German scholar. 
okay. gentleman. And he said uh, that to keep the classics alive, we have to feed them with our own blood. Uh, and I think that's a good, that's one of the, because <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the only thing you can do, because otherwise they become irrelevant. Um, well, this is, this is the thing as well about that gatekeeping of the classics and making it be and that perception and belief that no we have to be faithful Mm -hmm. it cuts off a whole um the majority of society who that doesn't appeal to or that that idea of putting your blood into it if we don't make these things relevant to today if we don't say no look look how it can relate to your life we keep it in that boys club don't we yeah and then it becomes completely useless and then I do understand people who say we shouldn't study classics at all because yeah we shouldn't if that's what we think of Mm. when we think of classics like we should not be um carrying on this torch of look at our ancestors they were perfect and their skin looked good (laughs) like I don't know um (laughs) they were like this this perception of the macho man who had slaves and yeah who you know this like this perfect this there's this concept of ancient roman greek that sort of get used as like they're a perfect society and we need to return to those ways yeah even when people talk about greek democracy as a direct form of democracy like athenian democracy that's bullshit because most people weren't part of that um what what was that what was that so uh, basically um, in athens um all male people (laughs) of a certain age like with certain um qualifications of like uh owning land yeah um, and stuff like they had they could they could vote basically to put it like Mm. plainly um and so that's like the first form of like or it's like often presented as like the highest form actually of western democracy because it's a direct form Mm. of democracy it's not it doesn't um there's no like middleman between like power and the people voting but then when you think about the people who were voting they were not they were like a very small part of the population and it wasn't like so it it wasn't really you could argue it wasn't really democracy. Yeah, or like, or that democracy isn't inherently flowed, as in like there is no such a thing as um, direct, um, perfect democracy. Mm. So like, and looking back at that kind of rule as the the birth of democracy is not useful because mm-hmm. you keep talking about it like it's... Um, like the people were the people but actually the people were just a few yeah (laughs) um a few people (laughs) it's all like this myth of it was like that the ancient world was like this perfect place that like no one actually ever believed in Mm. (laughs) and actually they started that myth themselves like looking at their ancestors yeah um yeah we've we've sort of been talking about how classics is seen as a boys club and there's Mm -hmm. this idea of the faithful translation what was your experience 
and are entering that world at such a prestigious mm. uh, university such as Oxford? I think there's so my experience has been is very like varied like from when I was at high school in Italy as I said like mm-hmm. that there was like a state school it was like very chill like as in it was not very chill it was <laughs> it was quite like uh demanding to study Greek anyway but like it wasn't a big thing like it was just a thing um it was a bit more sort of in kind of widespread yeah definitely widespread yeah not as exclusive yeah definitely um yeah I think also Oxford is complicated yeah <laughs> um Oxford is complicated I think because of the um college system colleges um so I would say I had a very different experience um being in my college and be like receiving education in my college and yeah. receiving education at the university level yeah um yeah very very different experiences although like ultimately they were they both like made up my university experience so my college uh Wadham was very is very cool very gay (laughs) um so I fish right in um so and and like I had a a really lovely time there and I felt very um I felt very at home uh also like in tutorials like with my college tutors so tutorials are the kind of classes that you get with like a few students like in your college bit more traditional classroom setting not 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 sort of opposed to the lectures where it's one person speaking at the front they're a bit more interactive yeah yeah. Yeah, definitely interactive so like it was with like my college tutors and um the other people in my year in classics so I think there were like eight people in my year in my college so like that kind of classes and that was very different from so I, I, I never felt in those classes like I couldn't say something or like I was expected to behave to like say certain things mm. um but I I do feel like going into like more like wider university so university-wide um classes um it was different <laughs> uh, because then we mixed I don't think like yeah we mixed more with people that would go to the kind of colleges that were like all the public school boys would go to if you see what I mean because okay. like it, it, it is quite different like I do think that like it really changes your experience like which college you're at yeah um I do remember one time when I I'd just been in a supervision Mm. well in a tutorial that's what they're called at Oxford and um I just had like my usual good time like having a big argument about I don't remember what Mm. um which is what you're supposed to do you're supposed to argue about like your defend your ideas like here are some other people's ideas and stuff you want to debate yeah and I remember like this boy um literally messaged me being like how dare you ridicule me 
in the class like you need to stop like I'm like and I'm like at the time I felt so ashamed of myself and it was like Jesus really yeah <laughs> yeah and I was like I think it was my fir- the end of my first year and I felt I was very shy if you can believe it <laughs> um and I felt terrible I felt like this like shame and now like years and years later I've recently like remembered about this and I'm like why did I feel ashamed like yeah. was a <laughs> I should have told someone I should have been like I should have gone to my tutor and be like this guy has said this like this is not okay right yeah whereas like it's the kind of thing that like now also because I teach now mm. so I feel like I've seen the other side of the room that I'm like you are supposed to be argumentative in classes like you're that's what you, that's what I'm paying the um uh, student loans company yeah. for <laughs> um but like at the time I was like I was like a girl like being told yeah like, be quiet yeah you know? I mean it, that's such an intimidating yeah and it's the kind of thing that like experience and it was in the context of like a classics supervision thing like afterwards um so it wasn't like it, I never had any of that like from a supervisor or something mm-hmm. like obviously um but yeah being in the kind of environment where like I came across people who would do that whereas like now I'm like i I realized that I I would never feel entitled to be like you're disagreeing with me therefore you're trying to ridicule me therefore you need to shut up <laughs> it's that it's that entitled um yeah. arrogance of the sort of um arrogance that you belong yeah. that you were talking about before yeah. and that I bet my ass that that guy took the, the exam but I, I think I haven't heard that he got it, so I feel like he didn't. <laughs> hopefully he failed. I, I feel like I would have known. I would have known. If he hope, did. Let's 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 um, all take a moment of silence and hope that he failed. <laughs> yes. Great. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm going to bring in a quote. I've just got an article up in front of me about Emily Wilson's translation, and it brings out it sort of brings up that quote that we're looking at the um, idea that. The faithful translation acquires a particular edge in the context of translation by a woman of the Odyssey. Um, And it compares this with uh, T.E. Lawrence, who began his translation in 1928. And this is an article from The Spectator, which I'll link in the Mm -hmm. description of this episode. And this is how he describes his qualifications for translating the Iliad. I have hunted wild boars and watched wild lions, sailed the Aegean and sailed many and sailed ships, bent bows, lived with pastoral peoples, woven textiles, built boats, and killed many men. Like for real? And <laughs> 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 la- that last, I, that last one, I am. Um, Is he talking about? Like, is he like? Just well, I suppose that was the First World War, so he must have lived through the First World War. So maybe he's referencing that. Yeah. Would you say that, that killed many men? <laughs> and not on record. No. I mean, listen. If someone came on my show and if someone came on the <laughs> podcast and was like, 
And I said to them, hey, what are your qualifications? And they were like, I've killed boar, <laughs> I've sailed the sea, I've woven textiles, and I've killed many a man. I'd say, great, um, <laughs> I will agree with everything you say. <laughs> I hope you don't have a knife on you. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's... it's Number one, what a set of qualifications with some really horrifying implications. Um, Would you say that that is an accurate uh, reflection of the Odyssey? Because he thought, I think in this quote, T.E. Lawrence uh, is sort of saying, look, I know what I'm doing. I've lived the life of Odysseus. I've killed men. Oh, I've sailed the sea. (laughs) Do you think that's an accurate reflection of the Odyssey? And do you think that is an appropriate set of qualifications? (laughs) Well, to begin with, I don't believe him. (laughs) <laughs> and you know why I don't believe him? Because I don't believe that he's a woven textile. I don't <laughs> believe it. Like, that looks like a really hard thing to do. Like, if you've seen, like, a huge, like, the way that, that, that yeah. they wove stuff in the ancient world, it's really fucking hard. Um, <laughs> and I don't believe this man did that. Uh, I don't know who he is. I just don't believe him. Um, and then, does he say that he slept around? Because I think you need to have slept around <laughs> in order to... That's, like, the main qualification for translating the Iliad. Uh, you the, know the Odyssey, what? Sorry. You know what? He hasn't. And therefore... And I, I feel like, in a list of such qualifications, if you're mm. not also disclaiming that you've slept around, yeah. then I can only draw the conclusion that you are a virgin. Yeah. T.E. Lawrence, yeah. I'm, I'm, he's... <laughs> presumably dead so he can't sue me you are a virgin (laughs) so and you don't go here (laughs) hello editor cherry again i realized after the recording of this episode that t.e lawrence is the same lawrence as lawrence of arabia subject of the very famous 1962 british film of the same name He was an archaeologist, an army officer, a diplomat and a writer most well known for his role in the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. He also, coincidentally, was made a fellow of All Souls College in 1919, which supported him in the writing of his book Seven Pillars of Wisdom, an account of his war experiences. On the subject of his sexuality, there is actually a lot of debate around this. Tariq Ali asserts he married a young Muslim girl in India in 1928, while others discredit this. Some speculate he was asexual, so maybe I wasn't entirely wrong when I very crudely called him a virgin. There's also a lot of speculation that he was homosexual. The dedication to his book Seven Pillars is a poem titled Two Essay and begins like this. I loved you so, so I drew these tides of men into my hands and wrote my will across the sky in stars. To earn you, freedom, the seven-pillared worthy house, that your eyes be shining for me when we came. There are many theories as to who S.A. is, most notably perhaps Salim Ahmed, also known as Dahoom, who worked with Lawrence on a pre-war archaeological dig and with whom he was apparently captivated by. Not directly relevant to Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, but it felt like important context to this conversation. 
I promise that this will be the last time that I pop up and interrupt your episode again today. And I hope you enjoy listening to the rest of it. God, but that, there's that sense um, of macho and of manliness being kind of inherent to the Odyssey. Yeah. That's w- would that be so your interpretation of it? No. No. <laughs> um, absolutely not. Actually, I, I, d- I can't remember who, but I know that someone like really famous <laughs> said that like um hypothesized that the odyssey was written by a woman i actually. have that in front of me as well actually oh, cool. um so in 1887 samuel butler proposed uh-huh. yes. uh, really famous. <laughs> in his 1887 book the authoress of the odyssey he proposed that it was written by a woman because and i'm quoting the mm-hmm. spectator article again that the cast of female characters princess queens slaves goddesses along with its vagueness on the technical details of sailing and war <laughs> um so samuel butler is proposing that you talk too much about women and not enough about boats (laughs) and therefore you're a woman (laughs) i mean it's not it's i haven't read the book so obviously i can't say but you know it's an oral tradition so who can say exactly where exactly that's the thing like um I wouldn't go as far as saying that a woman wrote the Odyssey because no one wrote the Odyssey. It's an oral poem. Like, Mm. same for the Iliad. Like, it's insane, I think, to to assume that the standard human being is male. (laughs) It's it's just crazy. Like, sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but I I, I swear, like, there's a point in there. Go on your tangent, Um, do it. But there's, like... Mm-hmm. There's this archaeological site uh, somewhere in Greece. I think it's called uh, Mount Hymettus. Hymettus. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, in Athens, which you can't visit, I think, because there's a military base. Uh, fun f- fact. Uh, <laughs> but basically, that's where like some of the earliest evidence of writing is um, of like the the Greek alphabet. Um, and this evidence is like bits of pottery where like people scratched letters um and none of those letters like or like most of of them are like kind of strings of letters mm. and like dedicated to Zeus to Zeus um as um and like th- the offering to Zeus wasn't like the the pottery itself it was because they were already broken when they were uh, offered like there were like these sheds of pottery with letters right. on them and like the offering is the writing itself uh, and that's like the earliest evidence of writing we have and I remember like when I studied this everyone like all of the scholars assumed that they were men that wrote these things mm. and I'm like how like just because just because of the patriarchy and like just because of the way that like our society is built mainly to accommodate men, we just assumed that the standard human being is male, and that like we just that that's the the fault. It's it's that idea mm. of the other that the standard human being is a white straight cisgendered man, uh, probably from the west, <laughs> um, and that is the standard and then everything else is a deviation upon that exactly and like no one like 
a deviation could never have like scratched some letters on a bit of pottery like, right Why um, do, yeah yeah but I mean that's one of the things that like I felt really lucky being at my college because I remember like my my teacher was like um yeah you're right uh, by the way, Peter Thorneman. Hi, Peter. He actually <laughs> won the. Uh, he did. He sat the exam um, oh. for the whole souls, and like he was an um, all souls scholar. So you know, some of the good guys also get it. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's um, not tangent. only all souls. Yeah. Um, anyway, going back to so like same goes for telling stories. Like, how can you assume that this story that you're saying? Um, is based on oral tradition, which which it is. Like the Odyssey and Iliad, are like where at some point they were soon soon together. Like yeah. from so many stories that people told. Like the person who told me most stories, like in my childhood, was my grandmother, who was mm. barely literate. So like, how can you just assume that it? That they're mostly from men. Exactly. <laughs> so stupid. Storytelling um, isn't a specifically male thing. It's something exactly. that's inherent to human society. Yeah. And I think there's something quite nice about the idea that these things are collective, mm-hmm. like are collectively offered, the idea of the oral tradition. I feel like coming back to the idea of the faithful translation. Mm-hmm you could make the argument that I don't know how to phrase it but like every translation is sort of adding onto it Mm. in that sort of following in the footsteps of the oral tradition every translation is building upon it so how can anything any interpretation be wrong or mm-hmm. how can a female translation or a translation from the point of view of an immigrant or a translation mm. from the point of view of X, Y, Z, a translation from the point of view of anyone who isn't that sort of, uh, as we were saying, that sort of standard idea of a human, a white mm. man living in the West, how can any of that be wrong? Because they're just building in on that tradition of the oral tradition. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We've spoken about the uh, sort of boys club of classics Mm -hmm. and how uh, people can be repelled from classics and there is this sort of, um, you know, a lot of people say, well, what is the point of classics? Why why Mm. do you think classics are important? Um... Make your sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's no point to classics in the same way that there's no point um, to English literature or to art or to theatre or to music. Um, it's not productive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're like, if you're looking at classics like as a way of making money, then you're wrong. Um, but and then and I think, but that's the point. That's what makes us human. Like all the things that are not necessary. Yeah. Um, and I think classics is different from other um, disciplines because of its history of being used, um, as we've discussed, like yeah. in very right-wing political environments and like of being used 
and and being embedded in a history of um, privilege, really. Mm. Um, so I think we need to be way more careful with classics than with other subjects, I guess. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should disregard them completely. Mm. Like I do understand the point of view of people who say this is not my culture, this is not my, um, this doesn't speak to me. But I also, but I would say it can speak to you. And it, it's, it doesn't mean that it should, um, but also there is space in classics for different point of, points of view. And I think the subject would be enriched and it would be much more interesting and yeah much more useful um yeah. if it was more accessible and and I, I hope it, it gets more accessible I, I hope it keeps I, I hope different kinds of people like keep getting drawn to classics because it's it's got its things like <laughs> uh you know the odyssey is fundamentally a very good story I think personally um the same for the Iliad which is the other Homeric poem um as in good story it's just good storytelling like yeah it's just really good actually I'm, I may go home and like read the Iliad <laughs> again um and so like we should keep studying the classics in the same way that we should keep studying all kinds of literature like things that are absolutely useless yeah because they're what make us makes human like you know like learning like how to you know economics like are very like useful and like Mm. good things to be aware of if you're like numerate which I'm not (laughs) um they're considered quite practical kind of this will get you a job they're a sensible exactly and I'm sure that like we definitely need doctors and like people who understand the economy (laughs) and um lawyers and all of that like we need that sure whatever um but that's not what makes us human like things like classics is what makes us human and we shouldn't allow it to be a boys club kind of subject and as you're saying as well there is so much that can be drawn from it like the idea of coming home relating to your experience as an immigrant and Mm. see it's such a it's such a shame and such a loss that for years there's been this um i kill wild boars (laughs) and I've killed many men and I have lived with, I've done X, Y, Z kind of machismo mm, to it. Yeah. And there is that, I've, yeah, there's definitely something lost yeah. if we only take that yeah. interpretation from it. Yeah, it's it's very telling, I think, that he, um, the guy, <laughs> um, T.E. Lawrence. T.E. Lawrence. He translated um, it. It doesn't say... Uh, he, he started translating it in and 1928. Then he, and then he started um, watching Riverdale instead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, it's very telling that he doesn't say anything about, you know, I've cried, I've wept for my dead friend. Because I would argue that that should be a qualification for translation translating the Odyssey, like, being yeah. able to, like, to cry. Because, actually, there are a lot of 
men weeping in the Odyssey and in the Iliad and like generally in classical texts, like men are much less uh macho macho man, you know? Mm. <laughs> um and that's something that doesn't come across usually because of that uh, like shell of yeah. um machismo and of boys clubs like thing that we've talked about that's a really interesting point i really like that i mean he he started writing it after the first world war he started translating it after the first world war and the odyssey is a play about the aftermath not the play why didn't i say the play uh the odyssey (laughs) is it's a poem isn't it yeah it's it's a poem about the aftermath of war Mm -hmm. and he doesn't in that say anything about you know loss or or love and to him you know he's it doesn't feel like he values life in that quote yeah i've killed many men i've killed wild boar yeah yeah there's a sense of there's there's a sense of i guess that machismo and that Mm -hmm. um general assholery <laughs> really he seems like quite a nasty piece of work i'm not uh, just an average man <laughs> <laughs> sorry if there are any te lawrence stands out there but he seems like a bit of a dick um <laughs> o-t-e o-t-e uh, what a shame that's a, okay so this is why people should study classics <laughs> Listen to me. Okay. (laughs) Because for the thousands of years that people have been studying classics, that's what they got from the Odyssey. It's like, or or like from classical texts, it's like the, I killed wild boars and Mm. I killed a lot of men. Whereas there's so much more that like we haven't, it's actually like that, it's almost like we haven't really read the classics as a society, as as the society that we want to be Mm. uh, and that we are closer to being now that we were, I don't know, even 30 years ago. Um, Because, I mean, I'd like to read a translation of the Odyssey by a a non-binary person. Like, that's not happened. Mm. Like, and as far as I know, there's no translation of the Odyssey by a black uh, woman. Um, So, like, there's all of this experiences that have not been brought into the text yet Mm. um and that's why we need to keep doing it because otherwise it's never like all of these stories that are already contained in the odyssey to say like the odyssey for like um as a shorthand for all of classical texts really Mm. it's like all of these stories will never get to be told if we don't keep you know, fighting for it. And they're in there. Yeah. They're in yeah. there in the same way that you can look at Shakespeare and take a queer reading from it. You yeah. can look at Shakespeare um, and take a, sort of a uniquely female reading mm-hmm. from it. Uh, you can look at Shakespeare and maybe you could look at it as a... I'm losing my mind. I'm <laughs> sorry, I just really fluffed my words. That you, could, you could look at Shakespeare from the perspective of an immigrant or anyone mm-hmm. who isn't, again, that sort of standard human that yeah we, that we sort of perceive the idea that this must be must have been a white straight cis yeah. man living in the west there that mm. these stories are there 
they're all there. Yeah. And I think there's value in them and like we yeah. should get them out because it's cool. It's <laughs> it's fucking cool. Um <laughs> I am going to say time's up, pencils down. This exam <gasps> is now over. Okay. <laughs> Can you give me your thesis statement to the question? Quote the gendered metaphor of the faithful translation, whose worth is always secondary to that of a male-authored original, acquires particular edge in the context of a translation by a woman. End quote. Emily Wilson, translator of The Odyssey. Discuss. Okay, so my stand on this is uh, that it's questionable whether there's such a thing as a faithful translation. Um, And Emily Wilson is absolutely right in (laughs) saying that uh, this this, um, concept um, is particularly relevant, I guess, in a translation by a woman. Amazing. Well, thank you very thank much for you. sitting this exam. It's really now, hard. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was a hard one. Oh, my Ugh. God. I know nothing about classics. Um, now, All Souls only accepts mm. one or two people every year. One year. Nobody got in because they said none of you are smart enough. Which year? That's a great <laughs> question that I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> that's a good question that I do not know off the top of my head. However, here at the exam hall, we do not gatekeep. Ooh, we do it. not keep those gates closed. <laughs> uh, the sentence is getting away from me. Basically, here at the exam hall, our gates are widely open right. and everyone gets in. So with that in mind, we have reviewed your application and I am thrilled to welcome you into the hallowed halls of the alumni of the Exam Hall podcast. Oh, thank you so much. How does oh it my. feel? It feels good. I'm not going to lie. I feel vindicated. <laughs> also, it would have been awful <laughs> if it said, we take everyone except you. <laughs> so that's yeah, a relief. Yeah, yeah, we don't gatekeep here and everyone's welcome. But we sort of looked at your application and we feel like... It was good, but maybe maybe this isn't for you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> now, if you get into All Souls, mm-hmm. you are given seven years of funding to complete any research project of your choice. You are given a salary. You are given board. You are given access to study any subject of your choice at Oxford. And you are given contacts with leading professionals in your area. If you had all that time and all that money and all those resources, what would you do? I would drop out. <laughs> oh. That's that is a power move to be one of two people Imagine. to get into be like, no, to get the fellowship <laughs> and then be like, actually, no. Yeah. Thanks, I prefer guys. the university of life. <laughs> um, actually, like I've been ooh, I've been thinking about this. And ultimately, I would be doing a, pretty much what I'm doing now, yeah. <laughs> which is study uh, for a PhD in English, uh, just at the other place. Um, but also, like, but I would be much more chill <laughs> about it. Um, 
because of like all of the resources that you get. I think like I remember I went to an like an evening at All Souls um where like they were trying to get more women to apply, which is funny considered <laughs> that then I couldn't sit the exam. <laughs> but anyway, um I remember like they were saying that like you get five hundred pounds just for books every year. Like apart from your salary, like you go into Blackwell's um, which is the um, one of the main um, bookshops in Oxford, uh, and you have like a tab open like at the bar, it's, oh which was what I was thinking. About. It was like I don't need like I don't care about all of the other stuff. I just want to have like all the money for books, um, which means I would be rich because I spend all my money on books. <laughs> um, what would I do? I actually, what I would have done, in fact. I would have applied to the uh, creative writing masters at Oxford, which, by the way, is the one that Emma Watson is going to to go to this year. Which really, makes me yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God yeah. damn it, Emma Watson. God damn, yeah. as in Hermione yeah. Granger, Emma yeah, Watson. Yeah, that that one. <laughs> um, yeah, she's starting a masters um, in creative writing, which is exactly the masters that I've been wanting to do for like since I was an undergrad. Uh, and I learned that it existed. And I think I would have done that because um, I think what comes with All Souls is like this, or in my dreams, is like the, I don't know, the, the kind of like confidence that like you have this net mm. <laughs> supporting you, I guess. Yeah. Which like you just, like very few things <laughs> um, would give you, I think. Is there any barriers that you faced that those kind of theoretical seven years would sort of erase? Or are there any barriers you faced in education that you think having seven years and all these resources could kind of maybe not erase, but Mm. alleviate? Make it easier, Um, definitely. I think think I'm really, really, really really lucky and privileged in that I made it work anyway and I was able to make it work because um, my family were able to support me like through my MPhil um, which would not like is in no way like a given yeah Um, so I'm, I'm really lucky that I'm like I'm not that I'm like the life I'm living is not that different except that it's much more stressful (laughs) yeah (laughs) because I think like yeah I think having all of the resources of all souls like both from a like intellectual point of view and um from a point of view of like social point of view yeah and um economical obviously um I do think, like, it would just make my life so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> Understandably. I would live like a gentleman. <laughs> That's what I would do. I um, think I, I think if I got in, like, the definitely the first thing I would do with that salary is go and buy some caviar. <gasps> I've never had caviar true. before. And I think I'd, like, buy a caviar and a cigar. Yeah. And I'd go, I'd, like, buy a top hat as well. And I'd just... I was literally thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, like, get a nicely tailored suit. I'd buy a top hat, I'd buy like a little box of uh, caviar and a cigar and I'd eat it and smoke it (laughs) 
and yeah. just bask in the radiance of prestige. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, it's, I think I would be like, you know, um, Pip in Great Expectations. Yeah. Yeah, that would be me. But like, someone believes in me. I'm going to spend all their money. <laughs> like, I'd waste yeah. their money. If I got yeah. into All Souls, I would oh God, waste their money. If I got into All Souls, mm. I would make them regret it. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, that's such a great statement. Yeah, I could like, I could leave like a gentleman but then is that really like ethically sound not really <laughs> so mm, that's true who, who needs to be as a, like a gentleman in 2023 honestly like no, no. <laughs> Raffaella, thank you so thank much you. for coming on and talking to me about classics this has been a really great conversation um and i'm so glad that <laughs> I'm so glad that you came and talked to me. Before we say goodbye, have you got anything yes. to promote, anything to shout out, any last words of wisdom that you would like to leave us with? Oh, that's very tempting. <laughs> uh, I definitely have something to promote. So my play, um, The Other, um, will be on at the Edinburgh Fringe. Whoop, whoop. Uh, yay! From the 21st to the 27th of August at the vaults in paradise green at 3 20 p.m and yeah it's uh, about a family moving out of their house uh, and it's about like they're a multi-generational immigrant family so a lot of the themes that we've talked about today come into play in the play <laughs> um a lot about like language and translation yeah um so yeah please come please 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 <laughs> come and see it um yeah and like some of my I think well actually only one of my short stories are online if you need like if you want to read the other ones you actually have to buy journals which would also be nice but I don't get any money for it so if you have to choose come and see with the play um yeah so uh my new play um, it's okay, I still think you're great. Uh, we'll be on in Cambridge uh, at the Fitzpatrick Hall in Queen's College from the 16th to the 22nd of November, uh, which is a while in the future. But, you know, it's Book it's your tickets now. So Get it in the diary. Yeah. Words of wisdoms? Uh, if, of you, wisdom, if, yeah. if you have any. Uh, oh, I have way too many. <laughs> um, hmm. Read like a gentleman. Leave like a wild boar. <laughs> Read like a gentleman, live like a wild boar. What a gorgeous little sentiment. <laughs> leave and that's what qualifies me to translate <laughs> the um, Odyssey. <laughs> oh, well, I will now release you into the world with this. I'm sure life-changing experience of being on the Exam Hall podcast, the best podcast in the entire world. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. That was a blast. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of the Exam Hall podcast. If you want to stay updated with the Exam Hall, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the Exam Hall Pod. And while you're there, if you want to stay updated with me, Cherry, your gracious host, you can find me at Cherry the Eckle on Instagram and Twitter and Cherry Eckle on YouTube. 
Uh, if you've listened to today's episode and you thought, hey, that sounds fun, that sounds like a blast, and I would love to do that, come do that. If you want to be a guest on a future episode of The Exam Hall, please get in touch. I would love to have you on board. You can click the link in the description of this episode, which will take you to an expression of interest form, or you can get in contact on social media. I want to give a very, very big shout out to Boundless Theatre, whose support has made this podcast possible. And I want to give a very, 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 very big shout out to you for listening to this episode. That's very nice of you. Uh, I hope whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're having an absolutely fantastic day. And I hope it continues to stay fantastic. And if you're lucky, get even more fantastic. Uh, I'm going to go now. See you later. See you next time. See you in two weeks for the next episode. Love you. Bye.